Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Found myself um, going down the role of uh, becoming a consultant. This was um, uh, early 2000s, about a year, little over a year ago. Hi folks, I would like to introduce myself. My name is Payal and I am a traveler who also loves to meet people. And I think a blend of both is where this concept of melting pot has come about. In my Melting Pot series, I will be talking to lots of inspiring people from different parts of the world and also from different cultures, whom I meet during all my travels. The common factor between these folks will be the desire to follow their passion and make it a way of life. So step into this melting pot and enjoy the chats. Hi, everyone. Uh, today, I am in conversation with the lovely Dr. Rachika Bhandari. Uh, Rajika is a PhD. Um, she is she's so multifaceted. Um, so I've kind of got this little brief mini introduction for her. So she's an international higher education expert. She's an entrepreneur, a keynote speaker. Um, she's an author, a nonprofit executive, and most recently, she's also become a podcast host. Um, so Rajika's recent book, America Calling, a foreign student in a country of possibility, um, has been receiving fabulous reviews. Um, and even I managed to get hold of a copy in the past couple of days uh, that I've been in D.C., um, and I've managed to sort of, I, I do admit I haven't read the entire book, but I have most definitely uh, skimmed through it and really enjoyed um, your personal journey there. So thank you so much for joining me today, Rajika. Payal, I'm so delighted to be on your show today. And thank you so much for reaching out and uh, inviting me. Um, no, I just, I mean, when I, when I kind of got um, a reference to you and, you know, and when I read up about you, I said, okay, this is going to be a wonderful and very interesting conversation. So, so let's kickstart uh, the, the, the chat with a little, I know a lot of your background is in the book for the people who haven't read uh, America Calling. Um, if you could just give us a little background to yourself and how you eventually, you know, did this migration and uh, came into the US. 
Sure, absolutely. And, you know, in many ways, the book um, is really capturing not just my journey, and it is a memoir, but it's really been the journey of thousands of uh, Indian immigrants in the US because it basically captures that period of time where post 1960s in the US, uh, the doors of the country opened up again to immigrants from all over the world and particularly from India. And that's when we began to see a big influx of people coming to American colleges and universities to study. And almost all of us can think of uncles or aunts or other relatives who came in the 60s and 70s as young students to um, get an education in the US. And many of them went on to become immigrants and really form a part of uh, the very large Indian diaspora in the US now. Others, of course, went back to India, but for the most part, many of them stayed. So in, in many ways, the book is sort of capturing um, uh, that sort of migration and uh, really tells the story of Indian Americans who've made that journey of coming to America's colleges and universities as students and then becoming um, immigrants. And in my case, um, you know, the 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 experience or sort of the original motivation is not unique because as we know thousands of indian students uh, you know certainly of my generation this is a couple of decades ago and even today aspire to go abroad to study and you know um write um right after instead of post-independence india it was the uk and then it slowly shifted to the us and um and students want to go abroad. And so the same was uh, true for me. And this was back in the early 90s that, you know, I had grown up uh, in a family where one of my grandfathers had studied abroad. Um, I was seeing uncles and aunts leaving to go abroad to study. Um, my father always aspired for me to go abroad. Now, the interesting thing is, I actually never wanted to go abroad to study uh, or to come to the US because in, in the book, I sort of describe it as not wanting to become a fly trapped in American honey. And what I mean by that is that the US was always seen as sort of this land of riches. And that once you got there, you would be so ensnared that you would not want to leave. And I never want to be, I, I never wanted to be confronted with that choice. So I always said, I don't even want to go in the first place. But my father was very eager for me to go because he truly believed that an American education was uh, sort of uh, the very best education that your money could buy. Right. Um, well, fast forward some years and um, I found myself in a relationship. So interestingly enough, what eventually got me to the US was uh, was following in the footsteps of this relationship. And, um, you know, I spent uh, my uh, graduate school years in the state of North Carolina in uh, in uh, the US, the southern part of the US. And then fast forward many years later through a very interesting twist of professional fate, you could call it, I found myself in a role where I became immersed in the lives of students who had come to the US just like me. And I became a scholar 
of studying this sort of migration, as you mentioned, that happens all around the world through the pathway of education. And, um, you know, we often talk, I mean, there are different types of migration. And these days, of course, we're seeing a lot of forced migration, which is unfortunate when we look at refugees. We um, look at other reasons for which people are forced to flee. But the reality is that education is a major reason why people also migrate and often also become immigrants. So that's that's what's really captured in the book. Okay. And um, so I guess the inspiration for your book came from the fact that um, it was a personal journey for you and also the fact that, um, you know, you have, like you mentioned, Emma, you did by chance or however it happened that you ended up doing a lot of research and you immersed yourself in um, a migration of um, students coming into the US for education, right? So I'm assuming that that was the inspiration for your book. There were a couple of reasons um, that inspired me to write the book. So one of them was that once I became a researcher and scholar of studying this type of migration and really looking at what's happening to, you know, there are almost a million international students who are now studying at American campuses. Um, and I was surrounded by colleagues in the field who were doing similar work there was a growing realization that we have all the data, we have all the statistics, but we don't truly understand what does this experience of an international student actually look like. And as someone who had been through that journey of being both a student and then becoming an immigrant, I knew that the reality was quite different from, from what people wanted to accept and talk about candidly. So I really yeah. felt that this story needs to be told. It needs to be told for a broader audience to really understand who are these 1 million individuals who come from over 200 countries to you know spread at campuses all across the US. And also what are their contributions to this country? Because again, as I, as, as I said earlier on, when you look at the arc of immigrant America and we think about the sheer successes of this country, when we think about the Silicon Valley phenomenon, we think of um, university leaders, we think about leaders in the corporate sector, currently the heads of, uh, of uh, Google, of yeah. uh, Twitter, and you know, you can, you, and you know, yeah. it, you know, you, one can reel off those industries are all people who, were, who initially came to the US as international students. So there was a sense of um, growing frustration that why has this story not been told? And why is it not known? And the other motivation was, um, that when things got very bad in the US about five or six years ago, particularly for immigrants, so if you were someone from another country and particularly under the previous uh, political administration, um, when there was such a wave of anti-immigrant sentiment, there was that, that, that pressing need to tell the story, that the story needs to be told um, and now is the right time. So that sort of lit the fire under me. I'd been working on the book slowly, but that was like, no, I need to get this out because I want to really uh, put a face and voice to, uh, to these stories. Yeah, and I think if it's a personal journey, um, I mean, you have said that it's from a broader perspective and, you know, mm -hmm. you, you were speaking on 
through your book on behalf of um, millions of students who kind of um, come into the US. But the fact that it was a personal journey, like a memoir, it's probably more endearing and, you know, has a deeper connection, I guess, which is why, you know, a lot of people are able to relate to your book and your stories. So so that's quite interesting. Um, so, you know, as, as you have mentioned, I mean, I was obviously listening to, while researching you, some conversations that you've had, and um, you uh, mentioned about you know, um, the difference between um, the reason why European students would um, migrate uh, versus an Asian student, you know? So, I mean, there are, I mean, obviously there are cultural differences um, which are pretty marked, um, but what, in your opinion, um, would lead a European student to, or encourage a European student to move in, say, say to come to the US to study or to go anywhere else um, um, versus uh, someone from Asia? What, what are some of the differences? Yeah, that is such a great uh, question. And there are some key differences. And um, I think that with many students from Europe. Now, of course, I mean, I'm generalizing even within yeah, Europe, yeah. there are there are variations. But, but on the whole, if we look at um, both the migration patterns of students, but also immigration patterns, what we find is that most students from Europe, um, when they choose to go abroad, are really going abroad for what we might sort of characterize as the exchange experience. So um, this really, you know, historically also, if we look at um, Europe, there's been a long tradition dating back centuries, you know, before we had borders, before we had yeah. visas for yeah. scholars to um, to cross countries, cross borders, to visit universities. Okay, sorry, and to... sorry, I'm going to interrupt you here. Um, which uh, normally, uh, if you could add that, um, where would Europeans prefer? So let's say students is one category, and you mentioned people who are uh, in general immigrants, you know, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, part of the world would they really, really want to to explore and move to? Yeah, so I don't know that there, so regionally, I think a lot of the exchange that's happened um, for Europe has has really remained within the Western realm. So I would say that many of many European students are drawn primarily to um, to the US. And now again, when we, we talk about Europe, we're talking about an entire continent. Yeah. So there's actually a lot of intra-regional mobility, which to be honest, has been very affected by Brexit. So that's been the other complication um, within Europe. But even so, many European students are drawn to countries like the US, countries like Australia, because um, in a larger sense, and certainly linguistically, there's perhaps a sense of familiarity, at least amongst Anglophone countries. But of course, all of your in fact, most of Europe is not Anglophone. Um, yeah. uh, Anglophone. Um, but sort of going back to the motivations, there's really this um, 
historically this um, you know desire to sort of go abroad learn about other cultures to be an exchange student in other universities and then to come back having sort of had that experience and so the reason i mentioned immigration rates is that that's also reflected in immigration patterns here in the us that when we look at what sorts of students have stayed on in the US after their studies and say become immigrants, we find that most Europeans have gone back or a larger proportion have gone back. But when we look at Asian students, there's a real difference in motivation and it can almost be characterized as sort of educational migration for opportunity. So the idea that they're going abroad, not just for the sort of feel good sense of, you know, learning about different cultures, but it's really about the educational opportunity that again, you know, what is the best education that we can get and how can that education be a pathway to professional opportunity? And we see that very clearly reflected in the choices that many Asian students make. Um, uh, if we look at stay rates in the US, or again, sort of who stayed on, who's become a skilled immigrant, very large proportions of Chinese students, of Indian students, stay back in the US. In fact, um, over the past few decades, the, the stay rates have remained almost at somewhere between 70 to 80%, which means that for every 10 students from India coming yeah. to the US, seven or eight of them will, yeah. will stay on. So I think those are sort of the fundamental differences and uh, are therefore also reflected in um, what students choose to study. Most Asian students will come for, in fact, all of them will almost come for full degree programs. They'll pursue their bachelor's or their master's or their PhD. That's not the case for all European students. Many of them may come for shorter programs of study or just for part of their studies, because again, it's within the exchange model uh, very often. So I think, yeah, that those, those are some of the key differences. And what about the US um, students? Do they, because, you know, I, I, I do understand that this whole study abroad uh, for a semester is a very, it's a very integral part of, um, you know, the American um, students. So um, is, does it stay only um, as that, or do they also like to, you know, explore? And um, I know, for example, uh, Spain, because I, I, I do have, like I mentioned, you have a home there and I do live in Barcelona. Um, there uh, are a lot of American students who mm -hmm. who come not just they, you know they come to do their masters or uh, so it's more than just a uh, a study abroad term. So is there like a reverse um, migration of students happening from the U.S. as well to Europe or Asia or wherever? Not as much. And you've actually touched upon something that's of huge concern within U.S. higher education and amongst American colleges and universities, and which is that how to get more young American students to go abroad, how to get them to be more globally minded. And um, there's been a big movement underway for the past couple of decades to, to really try and move the needle on that. 
And if we look at sheer numbers, um, overall numbers, no, the, the, there's, there's a huge gap. So, you know, of course, the numbers have been affected by COVID, but even so, over the past couple of years, you know, we could say there have been about a million um, or just under a million students from all over the world flocking to uh, American institutions. Conversely, there have been just over 300,000 um, American students who go abroad. So the numbers are really not comparable. Um, and you're right that some students, you know, truly go abroad and immerse themselves for longer periods of time. And certainly Spain is actually one of the top very destinations. Popular. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> very popular. Yeah. Along, yeah. With, uh, <laughs> along with Italy and the UK uh, for, you know, all of the reasons that one can imagine. Um, and American students are very drawn to European countries. And indeed, some of them will uh, truly immerse themselves and, and uh, obtain entire degrees, but those numbers are few and far between because by and large what we see is sort of what you described earlier, very much of that short term, very short term period of uh, of going abroad. And, you know, there's a debate within the field that, you know, should, that is it what constitutes true immersion and should we keep yeah. sort of insisting that students um, uh, and that is real study abroad only a sort of more longer term immersive experience or is it sufficient for students to even go abroad for a few months as long as we can get more students to go abroad so you know i think these are some of the nuances but um you know many colleagues Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Will often say to me, well, why can't we move the needle on this? Why can't we get more American students to go abroad? And and, you know, I'm all for that. And, you know, I'm I'm raising a daughter who's American and we're already having conversations about where she needs to go abroad. And I'm encouraging her to get, you know, all of her degrees abroad. Um, but I think there's a fundamental difference and which and which is why it's sort of like comparing apples to oranges, because with the U.S. clearly having one of the world's best higher education systems, it's not surprising that the world wants to come here to study. And conversely, you know, many American students might feel that, well, if we've got such great colleges and universities, yeah. why would, I mean, there, there isn't that pressing need. Or, you know, yeah. again, if we go back to the idea of opportunity or the fact that many students coming from countries like India or other countries 
simply don't have access to high quality higher education at home and which is what's propelling them or pushing them to go overseas that's not the case for many american students so i think the the drivers and the push and pull factors are very different um on sort of those two two groups of students those who come here and those who go abroad Yeah, I guess, yeah, that makes sense. You're listening to a fusion of stories recounted for the first time ever by some fascinating people from across the globe with me, Payo, on this very unique and special podcast series, Melting Pot. When we talk about Asia, uh, the one country which, again, is is also my home, um, Singapore, um, is you know, has, uh, when it comes to education, um, it's got top-notch universities and there's a very, very um, strong focus on, you know, I mean, the kind of faculty that that comes, uh, the people that uh, the universities, um, you know, the professors that they hire are all, you know, with absolutely... um, uh, the top level education and experience. So why is it that uh, the American um, students don't, because Asia is a big draw for, you know, a lot of people, I'm, I'm referring to Southeast Asia specifically, uh, for a lot of, um, you know, young people to to travel within Asia and and make a base somewhere. So why is a country like Singapore not on the map uh, for American students? I get your, um, you know, your argument on the fact that there's um, education is uh, so good in the US and you have so many uh, students from, from the different Asian countries and from Europe who want to come here to get that education and the opportunity and all of that. But why is Asia, uh, Singapore not being being um, considered? Yeah, and before I address that, I just want to clarify that I was uh, presenting that as perhaps one reason why more American students are not going abroad. I don't think it's the right reason. I do think that it's myopic for students to think that just because they have the world's best colleges and universities, there's no need for them to go abroad. I think they absolutely need to go abroad because there is so much that comes from that learning that goes beyond academics. And in fact, I capture a lot of that in my in my book on um, how through my experiences, uh, being an international student, how you're also helping educate your fellow American students about the rest of the world. So I just I just wanted to be clear about that, that I'm not advocating that that students, American students don't go abroad. They absolutely need to because they're not going to learn about the rest of the world otherwise. So um, that is a great question. I agree with you. Why is Singapore not more attractive? Because um, given that there's no language barrier, for sure, Um, I wonder if it is lack of information, because I I agree with you that Singapore should be absolutely on the map of every American student, but I wonder um, if through marketing and promotion, because sort of, and what I mean by that is that 
globally, what we find is that countries that are interested in attracting more international students have huge market, their governments have huge marketing and publicity campaigns around this, where they're sending the message loud and clear that we're open to students from around the world. They have all sorts of incentives and policies to attract international students. And I wonder if there's a gap there that why are students not seeing Singapore as a viable alternative? Because you're right with with, uh, you know, um, uh, English not being with language, not being a barrier, it being such an advanced and developed nation state, um, excellent standards of education with, you know, I'm thinking of Yale and US and uh, all of the other institutions um, in in Singapore. Um, I don't know. It's a good question. I think there was probably some more awareness of it when there was the partnership between Yale and uh, NUS. Um, but it's a good question. I wonder if it has to do with sort of not seeing Singapore as offering sort of a more liberal education environment, but I, I don't know. I'd say I don't have an answer to that, but I completely yeah. agree with you that there are countries like Singapore that ought to absolutely be on the map of, uh, of uh, every American student. Yeah. So maybe, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe this conversation that we're having, because obviously, you know, um, <clears throat> a lot of people all over the world, um, I do tune in and and follow um, melting pot. So maybe you know uh, this can be something that can be raised, and people may sit up and say, "Hey, hold on, why not Singapore?" <laughs> so, yeah, and you, yeah, you've sparked. I mean, that's really sparked some interest for me as well. And I'm now thinking, well, maybe I want to go back and look at a lot of the data and the national policies and see because this is the sort of stuff I study and see what's going on there and maybe do write a piece around that and you know why not Singapore and see sort of. Uh, what's gone down then the past few years. Um, I know that some years ago, but this may be as long as a decade ago, I know that the the government, the Singapore government had put out like a major push to kind of um, really showcase Singapore as a global destination. But then I'm not I'm not sure what um, what exactly happened to that. So I think it's really it's worth exploring. Yeah, Good. That's a great so point. I yeah. so that's a trigger now. <laughs> I've yes, kind of, exactly. Uh, created um, a curiosity. Um, okay, so before we wrap up, I mean, it's just been such an interesting conversation, and I know that I could go on and on and on. But um, I just wanted um, to, you know, so so in your um, bio, you've uh, mentioned that you're an entrepreneur and. You're also a nonprofit executive. So I'm kind of curious to know um, what kind of a role you play for both of these um, um, expertise that you have kind of put down. I really love that question because I actually don't, I haven't had the opportunity to talk uh, a lot about this particular part of my life. And um, I guess what I mean by that, by, by those two phrases is that I've spent the bulk of my career working in the nonprofit sector. Um, my last um, 
so so i had a i had a very long career with a very venerable international education nonprofit arguably the largest nonprofit in the us in international education called uh, the institute of international education which uh, globally is also known for running the fulbright program for the us government and i was with iie for almost 14 years and that's where i really sort of developed my expertise in um, working on issues around international students and global student mobility and so for many years i was um, an executive uh, with an sort of rose through the ranks and levels of seniority in the nonprofit sector with iie and then um went on to do a couple of other different things also in the nonprofit sector um, and then took a bit of a, um, you know, I don't want to say it was due to the pandemic, but maybe it was a confluence of different things, but found myself um, going down the role of uh, becoming a consultant. This was um, uh, early 2000, so about a year, little over a year ago. And all the while thinking of it as a stopgap arrangement, because I was between roles and between jobs and sort of still being the, the sort of uh, good, pragmatic Indian that I am, um, I had to, of course, go find the next job because, of course, I'd been raised to believe that how can you not have that nine to five job with, you know, the right title and the right benefits and with a prestigious organization. So, um, so spent some time sort of trying to figure out what would be my next move and in the meantime found that my business was really taking off and that's when i had to sort of take a step back and say that maybe the universe is trying to tell me something here and that sort of led to setting up my own consulting firm almost exactly a year ago kind of making it official for myself and it's been the most interesting, I have to say, possibly the most interesting pivot I've made in my life where I would never have imagined even just two years ago that I'm going to be, um, you know, not leading in the traditional sense of kind of yeah. being a leader in a nonprofit, but being a leader in my sector in different ways. And then the book came out um, last September. And what was really interesting was seeing how, which I'd never anticipated or intended, that the book, how the book began to intersect with my professional work and led to some really, and continues to lead to some really interesting opportunities. And what was most important was that being an entrepreneur and being independent really helped me have a voice on issues that I care about, that the book is about. Um, in ways that I could not have had if I were leading an organization or speaking for an, for an entity organization. So, yeah, so there you go. That's, that's where I'm at right now. Everything rolled into one, running my business, um, right, you know, promoting my book. And like you said yeah. earlier on, I just launched a podcast about uh, uh, two months ago. So, yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting that you know you're you're able to um, uh, because I think it opens up you know 
it opens up time and mm -hmm. you're then able to think of the different kind of opportunities that you can tap into, which normally uh, you probably would not be able to do because like you rightly said, you're a part of a, an organization, a, a bigger consortium. So, you know, um, I think, I think, yeah, it's, it's an interesting way um, to to move forward. And also if there are, um, um, you know, issues that you're so focused on, this gives you an opportunity to be able to uh, address them uh, in a sense, you know? Um, so yeah, no, that's that's interesting. I mean, I, I took, of course, my way of thinking, um, unfortunately for me, um, similar, uh, you know, my, my parents, uh, the way they kind of brought my brother and me up was very different. It, you know, we we could um, follow the path that um, we were interested in or passionate about. So we didn't have, you know, so we were not in that um what's the word in that um traditional way of um you know one step leads to the next because that is the norm that's what's expected of you um so so in that sense it was a very very different kind of upbringing which is mm -hmm. what um you know my husband and i have uh, encouraged our daughter to do as well um because i think you know, it's no longer necessary to to be in that box. Um, yes. I think you know things have opened up so much, and uh, the 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 opportunities are so different. Um, and if you're able to tap into those, why not? You know, don't waste your time doing things that um, that are absolutely. Uh, um, the the you know the traditional way of thinking so mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. yeah so it's yeah it's, yeah I mean it's it's been it's been interesting like that so even I had a corporate job which I just gave up and I became mm -hmm. and because I knew that I was um, a creative person and I wanted uh, to see and explore and experiment in that space um, and and there's been no looking back you know so I really enjoyed the journey and I continue to. To learn, and I think um, I, you know, with my my podcast show, and I'm launching another one next week. Mm -hmm. um, it uh, gives me an opportunity as well to be talking to such wonderful people like yourself, and and it's a learning for me because you know I'm 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 not just focused on um, one particular um, issue, or you know, I mean, I talk to people from. Uh, who are doing so many different interesting things. And I learn and I grow with with each conversation that I have because I would not have looked at it or thought about it if, you know, I hadn't had that conversation. So I think it's, it's always about journeying and uh, the different experiences that you have, uh, which help you grow as, as a person. I mean, that's the way I look at it. So, um, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And, you know, it required a huge mindset shift and brought along with it a lot of fears around, um, you know, sustainability and, uh, you know, sustaining yeah, the business. That's because, and I guess, yeah, that's because I think um, 
you know, your um, formative years uh, were were very traditional in in the sense that, like you mentioned, your you know your dad saying that no, you have to go to the. I mean, for education, US is is where you need to head, and some of the things that I picked up from what you were saying, you know, and also this the fact that you current, you know, there was this fear of what if things don't work out. That's true. Though what's interesting is that I too, um, in sort of different ways, came from a fairly non-traditional family. I mean, I think that the some of the aspirations were traditional because it's not okay. just the family, it's the broader society that you're also growing up in, right? Like, so when I finished high school, um, it wasn't my parents saying it to me, but the broader society was saying, oh, so like, if you're not gonna do engineering, then what? Oh, so go do, you know, commerce or business. And you know, that sort of typical pecking order <laughs> that you often find in, in, in Indian society. And then I eventually went for the humanities and uh, the arts, but it's sort of that broader societal fabric where a lot of the thinking and the values remain the same and that influenced one's thinking. But, um, it's interesting that, you know, even in my family, like both of my parents, and especially my mom made some very non-traditional choices about uh, her life as well. But I think when I sort of talk about those kind of pressures, it's that overall culture and society at large where, you know, you're still receiving all of those messages, even right. beyond sort of the domain of the family and kind of what should you be doing with your life and and what validates you as a person and what sort of defines success right so right. i think it's sort of fighting back against um uh years of sort of receiving those kind of uh, messages whether directly or indirectly from the society that one has uh, grown up in so i think it's sort of that fear of um I mean, it's not, <laughs> I say this completely facetiously, but facetiously, but it's not the Indiana Jones attitude, right? <laughs> of, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do this and I'm going to explore, which is just not sort of the very typical Indian mindset. So I, I found that that's what I had to really battle. And, and yeah. um, this past year on sort of, like you were saying, that fear of what lies ahead. And if it's not predictable, then how are you going to deal with that situation? And I think that's just right. it. It's sort of this pursuit of predictability and then realizing that the formulas that have guided your life up until that point of time uh, need a reset. And what does that reset mean? So, and yeah. clearly the reset um, has been, you know, the right direction for you. So um, thank you so much. It's just been um, very, very kind of stimulating conversation. And I really enjoyed talking to you. And um, I'm happy that we were able to get connected. Um, and good luck uh, with, you know, whatever you're pursuing. And I'm sure it's going to go really, really well. Thank you so much, Payal. It's been lovely, lovely chatting with you and getting to know you. And I've been listening to your show and uh, really been enjoying it. So thank you again for having me. Thank you. Thank you. For more weekly conversations, do listen to Melting Pot on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts. Follow us on YouTube and on Instagram at Podcast Melting Pot. 
So until the next episode, this is Pyle signing off. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.